It is uh, March 30th, 2014. The message is called The Dedication of Two Sons. Dedication of Two Sons. As we get into this word today, you'll see some things that were upon my heart that I think are the heart of God. But where I would like to start is we have seen miracles all around us lately. Come on, baby, Riley is alive and well, amen? Steve and Dee Dee are anticipated to return next week, amen? So we got some good things in store, and uh, do you remember last week we burned up a good 35 or 40 minutes talking about people who had gone out from our fellowship and that our heart was for their return? That we love them and that when things go wrong, we refuse to go with them. But this is the high ground you can always come back to. One of our sons came home in the name of Jesus. Dustin, would you stand up? Come on, are you happy that a son of God has found repentance? I want to read you something. This is what came to my mind this morning. Dustin had the pleasure of sleeping on my couch last night. So I woke him up when I began to study in the early hours of the morning. And here's where it came from. It said, uh, Philemon, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I think this is the way that you receive back a brother. Is everybody in this room willing to forgive? Is everybody in this room excited for restoration? Then this is Dustin's family. Do y'all love the young man? Charlie, will you give him a hug as a representative of the rest of us? Come on, saints. How big is our God? How big is our God? It's never too late to turn around. Miss Amelia, you had a hand in that, and I thank you for it. You're used to the Lord, saints, in ways that you may never know. But it sure is fun when we get a glimpse into it, isn't it? How many of you love Jesus? So we're talking about the dedication of two sons. You know, in the Bible, two sons shows up all over the place. I found three distinct sets this morning, but I'm not going to take you through all of them. I just want to show you the way in which most people think of two sons. Start with me in Genesis 4. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Say there when you're there. Come on, it's all right to smile in church. It's all right to talk in church. It's all right to participate. In fact, you are the church. We did away with sage on a stage a long time ago and we picked up blue jeans and boots and you're stuck with the results. Two sons. The first two sons that are mentioned in the Bible are Cain and Abel. So in Genesis 4 and in verse 1, Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. What are the first two children infamous for? 
One kills the other one. Well, we're dedicating two boys here today. And obviously we're hoping for better things, right? Well, we'll set up the grudge match now. Sell UFC tickets to a future event. Unfortunately, when you say a man with two sons, the biblical examples that come to mind have to do with controversy, have to do with strife, because that's in the nature of a man. In fact, when you think about Cain, his name means he who possesses a spear. Come on, somebody was insightful. His brother Abel, his name means breath or vapor. Has to do with the brevity of his life, but it also may have to do with a more spiritual life. Come on, we don't know very much about the two boys, but we know about their hearts by what they did. And one of them brought offerings to the Lord, and the man was accepted, and so was his offering. The other brought offerings to the Lord, and the man was not accepted, and neither was his offering. Come on, you can't bribe God. He is looking for a heart that hungers for him. And your heart is evidenced in the things that you do. Move with me to Genesis 10 and verse 25. I just want to show you a couple sons. In Genesis 10 and verse 25, two sons were born to Eber. And of course, everybody went, oh, yeah, of course, Eber. (laughs) But if you were an Israeli, you'd know who Eber is. It's a little bit like saying George Washington. You say, wait, wait, I thought Moses was the big guy. The name Hebrew comes from this man's name. Eber is the father of most of the Semitic peoples on the planet. He's the third generation from the Noahic flood. So all Semites come from Shem, but the Hebrew people specifically come from Eber. Eber had two boys. Their names were Peleg and Joktan. Peleg means he causes division. In his time, the earth was divided. I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm simply saying his name means division. Joktan's name means small, implying humility. How interesting is it that we have two sons that show up in the Bible over and over and over, and one causes bad things, and the other causes good things. So when you think of two sons, you often, when thinking from a Bible perspective, think of sons of light and sons of darkness. You can repeat this over and over and over in Genesis 21, 8 through 10. You'll know their names, so I'll just tell you about them. We have Father Abraham, the exalted father of the nations, And, of course, Abraham has Isaac, the promised son, and Ishmael, the son who was born in bondage. Two sons. One that has to do with a promise and freedom, and one that has to do with bondage. But there's a hint here. Abraham loved them both. He wept over them both. He cared over them both. By the time you get to Genesis 25, 23 through 26... Isaac is having children. And of course, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. One who inherits the blessing and the other who forfeited the blessing. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? You can squeeze it all the way out to Egypt with Joseph in Genesis 41, verses 50 through 52. You have Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. You follow those boys' family line, and Manasseh forfeits his blessing, and Ephraim gains a blessing. 
Manasseh ironically means causing to forget, and Ephraim means doubly fruitful. Certainly a mama did not name their kid with the hope that they would give up the blessings of God. Certainly a mother and father did not name a son hoping that he would take the blessings of God from his brother. And yet we see this throughout history. Could we put Proverbs 20 and verse 25 on the screen? As a pastor, the thing that I hear the most is right after people ask me to pray for their children. You know, little Johnny, little Susie, could you pray for them? They're just, they're wayward, you know. Then they begin to move and tell me that they raised them in a godly way. That they raised them in church. And when you press and you ask what that means, it usually means we took them to church most of the time. And maybe they got to go to Sunday school. Maybe they did those things. And that's what passes for a godly home. That is not biblical. Not by a long shot. A godly home is not a service or two a week. A godly home is not carrying somebody to Sunday school. If that were true, I know a lot of people that would have a medical degree just by virtue of going to the doctor at least once a month. A godly home is something altogether different. And the good news is there are certain promises that come with a godly home. It's worth getting right. The families that we're dedicating their children today know something about this. They're doing a good job with their kids. But this Proverb 20.25 says it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. You know, we could have every baby that is born in our fellowship, maybe once a quarter, paraded in front of us, and we could just say, you know, my daddy beat your daddy in dominoes, and call them blessed. We could dedicate them. Of course, how is that any different than opening a fortune cookie? In reading the fortune over them. Say, but wait, we mean good with one. Our hearts are desiring good things with one. The Bible never teaches that your good wishes or good desires are going to have a benefit in someone else's life. Not at all. It does teach that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective and avails much. But your good wishes don't do anything for anyone. When we dedicate children, we need to count the cost. We need to decide what it is we're going to do to ensure that that child ends up where we want them to go. Amen. Amen. We got one father in the household that says amen. Are there any others out there that want their children to do well? When we're thinking on these notes, the scripture is so littered with warnings and they are never preached upon. Have you ever read about Gideon, the mighty warrior of God? Oh, I love him. Did you know that Gideon had 70 children? He's a busy boy. (laughs) 70. Of course, only one survived, the one who killed the other 69. Samuel, a mighty prophet of God. But his sons, Abai and Joel, people almost never even know they existed because they were wicked. Perverted justice. They were actually sexually immoral and accepted bribes from people. King David. Who in here loves King David? Man, he's a hero of Israel. I love him. Of course, he had a rapist for a son named Amnon. And he had a son named Absalom that did such indecent things, it's hard for me to even say him from a pulpit. Let me just say he led an insurrection all the way to his daddy's bedroom. It's crazy. And we say, oh, what a great man. 
What do you think his first responsibility is as a father, though? See, I think we need to redefine what a great man is. A great man is not someone who can stand on a stage and preach. A great man is not one who sings well. A great man might be a man who raises his family in such a powerfully godly, spirit-rich environment that the children leave the home on fire for God and establish homes that are on fire for God. Now, how many people can you name from your social circle that their children left the home on fire for God and established homes that were on fire for God? That number gets a whole lot smaller than popular authors that you can name. That number gets a whole lot smaller than professional athletes that you can name. And all of the other men that are thought so well of in the Bible, we need to learn to respect men who took their first responsibility to raise a godly home and did it well. Is there an amen in the house? Proverbs 22.6 is worth reading, worth thinking about. Some of you will know it in one translation and some of you in another. I'm going to read it in NIV this morning. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, this scripture is practically twisted into... If you train a child or start a child or dedicate a child in the way that he should go, when he's old, he'll return back to that way. But that's not what that scripture says. It says, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. It implies a life that followed in the pattern that you trained them to walk in. But training is not simply starting. This Hebrew word, kalnak, means to train, discipline, to uh, uh, exert effort, like exercise, in training. It's derived from a word that has to do with the narrow way. What are you training them to do? Turn from evil. Chase after righteousness. What are you training them to do? To press into the presence of God when everyone around them is running from the presence of God. What are you training them to do? To repent quickly in love fully. What are you training them to do? It's not memorize John 3.16. It's not wear Christian t-shirts or attend a youth group to eat pizza. You are training them to fight to get into the presence of God. And to view the presence of God as life and everything outside of it is worthless. That's what we're training them to do. Is there anybody in here who wants to raise up people hungry for the presence of God? Yeah. Come on, do you want it bad enough to do something about it? Yeah. When we talk dedicate a child, these are the kind of scriptures we're talking about. How about Exodus 12? Let's read verse 24. Say there when you're there. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Let us keep going in this verse. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Don't you love this? How many of you had a two-year-old at some point in your life? Give me a hand. All right. A two-year-old. I prayed for Judah, who is now 17. I prayed for Gabriel, who's now 13. Lord, let him speak. I was concerned, Charlie. 
I worked in an environment where every stage of a child's development was charted on a wall. And it said when you're supposed to walk. It said when you're supposed to talk, when you're supposed to crawl on all four points. I, I was very concerned that I might have children with disabilities. Gabriel butt-scooted and never crawled on four points. <laughs> Judah liked to never start talking. But then when they did, your prayer goes from, Lord, let him speak, to, oh, Jesus, will he ever shut up? <laughs> Anybody who's been at the Stevens house knows we got some talkers. Then we adopted a couple boys that I love. They're my sons. And they're talkers. So apparently this is not just a genetic problem. It's a learned behavior. God built into the heart of every child the desire to know why. Oh, man, have you heard that? Where are we going? We're going to Taco Bell. Why? Because daddy doesn't value nutrition. Why? Because I'm lazy. Why? Because, 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 because... You can why forever, can't you? God had certain ceremonies. The Passover was one of them. It says the Passover, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. When you look at this, the children are asking and the parents are telling. You know when you can't do that? You can't do that if you park them in front of a Nintendo or an Xbox or whatever the latest electronic babysitter is. You can't do that if your DVD player is getting more quality time with your kids than you are. Boy, the devil's crafty, isn't he? In fact, to raise children in a godly environment is one of the most selfless things you will ever do. It's hard work. It's difficult. God built into them the desire to ask. And God wanted us to tell. Do your children ask you Bible questions? And if they do, do you feel competent to answer them? Or do you say, wait, ask the Sunday school teacher next week. Wait, I I don't know. We'll call pastor. When the Bible says that a man is the priest of his home, it means that he first and foremost is responsible for teaching his family. First and foremost. This is something that is completely lost in the idea, well, I raised my children in a godly home. Really? Did you teach them the word? Well, I brought them somewhere to teach them the word. How often do you pray with them in a day? Well, we pray over our meals. (laughs) How often do you sow into their lives? Now, the problem with doing this, and you do it with new parents, is those that have been parents a while, guilt begins to descend upon the roof. It gets heavy, it gets thick, it gets quiet. And then the inner dialogue starts about justifications. Well, I did my best and I guess, and and all of those. Guys, there's truth and then there's a lie. We don't bend the truth so that we look better and we don't tell lies so that we look better. It's best to deal with this honestly because we want the result of a godly home. How many of you would like to see benefits in the kingdom? Deuteronomy 6 verse 6 teaches us how you get these. Say there when you're there. Oh, good Lord, I upset you. You're quiet. Are y'all mad at me? Say yes or no. You mad at me? It's okay to speak in church. Even you white folks, lightning has never struck a Caucasian for speaking in church. It's going to be all right. 
Deuteronomy 6 says, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Do you know you can't impress them on your children if they're not already in you? Therein lies the problem. The breakdown in a generation comes when salvation is cheap. It comes when a decision at the altar is the extent of your Christianity. It comes when church attendance is the full extent of your Christianity. When you do not have the commands of God as your operating agenda for your house in a real and powerful way, then you can't impress them on your children. Do you know why? Because he's going to tell you how to impress them upon your children. He says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. How many people in here talk about a sporting event at some point during the week? How many of you just lied by not raising your hand? Do we talk with our children as much about Jesus as we do that pigskin and gridiron, as much as we do as basketball, as much as you do... I'm just having trouble reading the crowd today. Maybe it's NASCAR. I don't know. For you people. (laughs) Do you talk to your children about Jesus like you love him in the way that you might talk about the other things that you love? See, I've seen a lot of houses. Mine was one of them where we talked about Fox News every day. But we only talked about Jesus at Christmas and Easter. And then it was, gimme, gimme, my name is Jimmy. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Now, you may not be walking, but how many of your trips to your family vacations are filled with discussions of the glories of God's Word? You know, it's pretty hard to do if your teenagers are plugged into an electronic device so that you don't have to interact with them and they don't have to interact with you. You know, the fastest way to offend your kids is to bring them to my house. Because if they have those things plugged in their ears, I pull them out. Amen. Amen. That was my son, by the way. When you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them. Do you hear all those action words? Raising a child in... The kingdom of God has to do with impressing commands, talking about them, walking with them, lying down in them, getting up in them, tying them, binding them, and writing them. By that definition, how many godly homes do you really know? This is not to beat people up, although you may be questioning that at the moment. It's to get at this verse. Turn with me to Psalm 78. How many of you would like your children to inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, man, do I want it? If I succeed in every area of life, conquer kingdoms, face the flaming sword, extinguish the fires of hell, and my own children don't walk with the Lord, then I'm a failure in my own eyes. It's everything. It's everything. Here comes Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter utter hidden things, things from old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. What are they going to tell? What their fathers 
taught them. We will not hide them from their generation. I'm sorry, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation will know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Where are children supposed to learn about the Lord? From dad and mom, from grandpa and grandma, from great grandpa and great grandma. And you build a godly legacy in a family. It's not based on your national heritage. It's not based on your political affiliation. It's not based on Chevy or Ford or Bud Light or Coors or any other thing. It is based upon your love for the Lord. But that's hard to do if we hand it to somebody else, isn't it? It's hard to do if we say, you know, you really should be like those people at church. Now I'm standing behind a pulpit, so you're all staring at me, aren't you? Whose kids are the worst in the church world? Tell the truth. You can say it out loud. Whose kids are the worst in the church world? Oh, man, can I say it? Why are pastors' kids often the worst children in the building? Because they hear their daddy every week say things that they do not see in their own home. See, I'm not scared to lob a stone towards you if I think it'll cause you to repent and move. And I'm certainly not scared to have that come back this way. Pastor's kids are usually the worst of the worst. And when we were lost little boys, we loved the Christian schools. Because they talked all the talk, but it was not in anybody's hearts. It was fig leaves covering up the nastiness. How do you build a home then that is not like that? That is more than just lip service to God. We tend to think of the two sons in the Bible as one is Cain and the other is Abel. But those are not the only kind of sons in the Bible. There's a shift in the thinking. What we see in Matthew 21 is that a man has two sons and they're more analogous to the way you think of your own sons. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Somebody say, Pastor, I'm going with you. All right, those of you that aren't going with me, you are going to be bored for as long as I can preach. In Matthew 21, let us pick up in verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Do you know when Jesus said this, the original audience probably lost a heartbeat when they hear the son's response to the father of no. It's so common in our society now that nobody even finds it shocking. But chills go up my spine when I hear a child look at his parents and say, no. And it's usually laughed off. It's looking at In Jewish society, which was shaped by the Bible, if a five-year-old looked at his parents and said, no, 
scrutiny would fall upon the parents for not correcting the child. Today, in our unbiblical society, if the parent corrects the child, scrutiny falls on the parent. There'll be a day when you can get put in jail for the things that I do in my house on a regular basis. And not just in my house, wherever I happen to be. Because what's godly in my home is godly outside of my home, and I don't really care what the Gentiles say about it. The original audience would be so shocked at this that they would have probably gasped. He told his dad, what? No. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will. But he did not go. This is probably where most of the church world seems to fall. We say, yes, yes. We say, Lord, Lord. But then we do not do the will of the Father. Does anybody know what Matthew 7.21 says about that? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what does that mean? It means that you can be a son... The Father can love you. You refuse to do what He says. And in the end, you do not get your inheritance. Maybe that's what the stories were about, where one brother is forfeiting an inheritance and the other was getting it. And they were raised in the same home. (coughs) Guys, I don't want my children to forfeit their heavenly inheritance. And the burden falls upon me. And it falls upon me because the way that I train them will determine how they start out in life. You know, we live in a society that shifts parental responsibility to the schools and then strips the schools of the ability to discipline. And we wonder why our children act like animals. Parents show up and say the problem is with those children and those children. My children are just in with the wrong crowd, never considering that their children are the wrong crowd. The system's broken. So we have one son who is obstinate but obedient. And we have another son who is amicable but disobedient. And Jesus asks a question. He says, um, which of the two did what the father wanted? I'd like to ask a different question today. Which of those two sons are you? Now, if you're smart, right then, I've given you an either or choice. Either you are obstinate, but eventually obedient, or you're amicable, but continually disobedient, and your mind ought to be going, is there none of the above? Jesus only presented two sons, though. And very often the Bible only presents two sons because it's moving people to pick a side. You say, wait a minute. God wants us to be obstinate? No. He's willing to tolerate obstinance if it ends in obedience. But he is intolerant of being amicable in the presence of the Lord but refusing to do what he says. He finds a person who speaks well and lives poorly far more unacceptable than a man who speaks poorly but lives well. Now let me ask you, is our society upside down? It's upside down. Whose responsibility is it to change it? Oh, it's ours. It's our responsibility. And where does it start? You know, Leo Tolstoy said, everyone dreams 
of changing the world. No one starts with themselves. I would suggest that we start with our own two sons. Now, when we talk about sons, it brings to mind a certain parable. We call it the parable of the prodigal Oh, man. You know, it's interesting. In the Bible, God named the days. Do you know what he named them? On on the very first day of the week, which was Sunday, in our language, he named it the first day. On the second day of the week, which was Monday, he called it the second day. And he did this all the way to the seventh day, which he called also a Sabbath. We named them after foreign gods. God did a lot of beautiful things that we stripped right out of the culture. When you think about that, when I say the prodigal son, what would you guess the parable's about? The prodigal son. Isn't that fair? Kind of like if I introduce... Oh, come on, stand up, Mario. I say, hi, guys. I want to introduce you to my friend, Doubting Mario. (laughs) Do you like him? Anybody want to be friends with Doubting Mario? No. Probably not, huh? But history calls Thomas Doubting Thomas. We call this the prodigal son. Who gave us that? Where does the word prodigal even come from? Prodigal is a Latin word. Don't get me started on the year 400 and how that happened. Of all the languages Jesus spoke, he never spoke Latin. Latin is not the holy language. It never has been the holy language. That is a serious mistake the world made, and I'm sorry. It happened. Everybody participated in it, and it's wrong. In the first, I am going to get on it now. In the first 400 years of the gospel, it was translated into 400 languages. In the year 400, it was reduced to one language, Latin. And can I tell you, if one group of people, whoever they are, centralizes all the word of God, I got it. I got it. Let me tell you what it says. We have a problem. Because how do you know if what I'm telling you is true? You know, the Bible was referred to in medieval writings as the pest by those who were in authority. Because it was like a pestilence when people found out what it really said. They no longer accepted what you said it said. Can you believe that people were burned at the stake for wanting a Bible? They were. And today we all have them and don't value them or read them. Don't teach them to our children. What was once the biggest threat to the world powers is now an ornament on the back shelf of a car. It's the word of God, saints. This is not the prodigal son. Turn with me to Luke 15. It was never called the prodigal son. It's not even about the son. If you want to raise good children, you can say it starts with good children, but that would kind of defeat the point, wouldn't it? It doesn't start with good children. It starts with a good father. Oh, saints, I hope you can hear what I'm going to tell you. When we call this the prodigal son, it makes the parable about the son. The parable is not about the son. It never has been about the son. That title comes from the Latin and was added after the year 400. Even in some Bibles in here today, it'll say the parable of the lost son. A son was lost, and yet that is not 
what the parable is about. I want us to raise godly children. You know what it starts with? An excellent father. Let's look at the nature of our father in the parable of the father with a lost son. Jesus continued. This is Luke 15, 11. There was a man who had... Now, when you hear two sons because of Cain and Abel, because of Jacob and Esau, because of Isaac and Ishmael, what do you think? We got one good one and one bad one, right? What happens if they both are bad? See, we are conditioned to pick a good one and a bad one. And we do it in society even to ourselves. We are good. You know why? Because they're the bad one. What happens if you're both guilty? We got a man with two sons. Urge your mind to accept that not one of these is a good son, and I will show you why. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. How many of you could see a problem with that? It's out of order. What is the younger son doing asking for an inheritance? What about the older son? Another problem. How do you get your share of the inheritance before the fathers died? You know, in our nation, we have what's called usufruct laws. Don't ask me to spell it. I will refer you to Matthew. Not the book, the person. It has to do with how you handle real estate in the event of a death. In the nation of Israel, you could not inherit your father's estate while he was living. And if your family was so broke, if there was such a problem that you had to sell it, the buyer didn't take possession of it until dad was dead. So you camped daddy out there and you waited. So when a younger son comes to a father and says, I want my share of the estate, it's like saying, daddy, I wish you were dead. Now, is the younger son supposed to be the executor of the state? He's not. The older son is supposed to be the executor of the state. Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between, what's that word? Them. This tells you that the older brother is complicit. It may not have been his idea, but hey, I mean, he's my Mississippi, you know. He makes me look good. When stacked next to him, that's what we used to say in Louisiana. When stacked next to Mississippi, we look good. Unfortunately, there's been a reversal of roles. Our logo back then was 50th and everything. Bottom of the list. This brother accepts a share of the inheritance. You know, woe unto us when we approve of wicked things people do. Do you know what tacit approval is? You know, if you stand by and watch somebody throw a baby off of a bridge, I think in God's view, you're guilty just like they are. You know, let's, let's put it in another term. I told you how much I love my wife, right? Did I tell you all that? Because I love her. I mean, I really love this woman. And if somebody was harming her and you were aware of it and had the power to do something about it and you didn't, I wouldn't just be looking for the assailant. I would be looking for you. Is there not a man in the room that understands what I'm saying? Have you ever heard of somebody stabbed in public and you're like, how about that, Judah? 
You ever heard of somebody stabbed in public and you're like, what was everybody else doing? You know exactly what they were doing. They were looking the other way. They were pretending not to notice. It's called the diffusion of responsibility. It's like if one person acts, then we may have to too. But if none of us act, it's like we never saw it, you know. This older brother takes his share of the estate too because he divided it among them. Do you have the word them in your Bible? Okay, then I'm not making it up. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The reason the parable is often called the prodigal son is from the Latin, the word prodigal means lavish. This is not about the son's lavish living. There's no new, no new news in the idea that people sin. There's nothing revolutionary about it. Are you shocked when somebody gets lots of money and then they live a lavish lifestyle with the lots of money they get? Is that a shocking thing? Jesus was a revolutionary in thought, a revolutionary indeed. He came to take an upside down world and make it right side up. He didn't preach long sermons, somebody should say amen there, on... Things that didn't matter or people already knew. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine. The story is not about the young man's lavish lifestyle. It's about the father and the father's heart. How do you feel when somebody says, I wish you were dead. And since you're not dead now, I want what I want now. And I'll just wait until you die to get the rest. How would you feel about that? Is there an honest person in the house of God today? Brandon, how would you feel? You'd feel terrible. When you feel terrible because somebody else has done something to you, what do you want to do? Some of you want to hit back. Some of you simply withdraw affection. You know, they're both sin. It's sin. Both of these brothers, one is committing something just overtly, obvious, out there, easy to see. And the other is doing something simply by not doing anything at all. Which son are you? When he had come, oh, we don't want to miss this. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began, what's that say? How many of you have everything you could possibly need? Not one of you is concerned about next year's mortgage payment. Not one of you in here has any financial need. All of you debt-free and got your retirement set up already? You know, I hear the same thing from people all of the time. Eventually it gets back to what they, they don't have. Have you ever considered that God allows famine in your life so that when you're in need... You can ask the Father. Have you ever considered that He delights in meeting your needs? And that when you don't need Him to meet your needs, it's a little bit like saying, you might as well be dead to me. I want what I want now and I don't need you to get it. Have you ever considered that? You got a great dilemma in your life? You have a great challenge in your life? This is a breeding ground for a great miracle by a great God. If you have no needs in your life, then you don't need a very great God. You're doing just fine by yourself. That'd make you think different about some of the popular bumper stickers you see, huh? 
may be different about the prosperity gospel that's being peddled around too. I praise God for famines when they come. It shows that we have a very great delivering God. Let me ask you, anybody in here loves somebody who's not doing right? Anybody? How about that? You pray for them. You know, one thing this father did not do. While his son has gone away and spent everything he had, the father didn't Western Union him some support. Is it because the father didn't love him? How could a loving God know that his son is out of money and in need and not do anything? You know how often I hear this as a pastor? Dustin, if I had sent you money and we had driven to see you and we fed you and we fellowshiped with you as much as we could while you were away, would you have ever had a desire to come back? No. Church, we need to learn what discipline is. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You say it's not loving. It is not loving to enable someone's sin. You want to know why we've raised a generation of monsters? Because we enabled them to do whatever they wanted to do, and we called it loving. We wanted to be our children's friends, and we called it loving. The father in this story represents God, and so does every father in this room. And by the way, the qualification for being a pastor is a man who runs his household well, who has represented God well in his own household. That way, when he does it for the whole church, it'll be a life worthy of respect. Not a man who speaks well or raises money well or handles building projects well. A famine sometimes is the best thing that can happen. It shows that you're out of the Father's provision and in need. Quit sparing people the expense of their sin. That is not your job. I can't tell you the number of times just walking to a gun show, which, by the way, was an ill-advised choice. It wasn't just a gun show. What was it? A gun and knife show. (laughs) Yeah, you might not get that. And you might. Just walking to the gun show. Matthew was approached for money. Eric was approached for money. Nick was approached for money. What do you do? Are you hard-hearted and you just don't care? What do you do with all the scriptures about kindness to the poor? Do you give everything you have to everyone you meet? What do you do? If you gave everything that you had to everyone you met, how long before you didn't have? I said, you know what, my friend? There's a bus that comes down here. It comes down here every week. Because this is somebody's son, somebody's daughter. They started off small. They, didn't, they weren't born this way. There's a bus that comes down here every week. You want to improve your life? You want to see something happen? Get on that bus. Go to the house of God. Do it repeatedly. And when people see faithfulness to that, when they see that you're bearing good fruit, I'm sure God will move and they will stretch out their hand and help you as a brother. You know what? Not interested in that at all. Just send me money while I live with pigs. Guys, if you do that, If you send people money while they live with pigs, and I'm not talking about the homeless, I'm talking about your loved ones and your relatives, you enable them to be pigs. And it's your fault as much as it's theirs. Oh, when I do this, it usually shrinks the church. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I do. 
But when you stand your ground in holiness and you say, I love you enough to not participate in what I know is wrong, and should you ever want to come back, you have a home here because you're my son. Then at least they know where to go when they're in trouble. Does it hurt when people walk out? How many of you cried and prayed for Dustin? See, I did. But he's back. And he's back because he wasn't receiving the life he wanted to receive, doing the things he thought he would enjoy. This parable is not about a prodigal. Listen to the reaction of this father. First, we have to hit bottom. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. When you first read that, you go, oh man, he's starting to get it, right? I got excited. And then I noticed something in the wording. How much does he know about his father? First off, he tells his father, basically, I wish you were dead. I want my money now. His older brother goes along with the younger brother's idea because, you know, there's something in it for him if he just shuts up and goes along. Now, when the kid has hit rock bottom, what does he want to go back and be? A hired servant. And maybe this strikes at the heart of the problem. Do you think of God like an employer? You'll do some work for him if he pays you. No real affection. Your heart is not burning for him, and that's why you can't impress it on your kids. Is he basically an employer-employee relationship to you? Well, you know, he's the father of us all. You better do good or he'll burn you. Or do you see him as a loving daddy? And you know his character and his heart. And he said, the problem was never with my daddy. The problem was with me. I ran away. He didn't do it. He didn't throw me out. I ran away. But I know my father, and if I came back to him, he would receive me as a son. See, the emphasis of this parable is not on the character of the son. You know what the character of every son is? Bad. Bad. We're born of diseased stock. I love my children, but they, they were born diseased. From the time you can ask a child a question and then respond, did you, did you just potty in your pants? Uh-uh. 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 Who ate that extra cookie? They, they, they did? Who? There's nobody else here. The monkey did it, Daddy. We're unregenerate. It's our job to put a character in them. Whose character? God's supposed to have impressed his character on you so you had one to give to them. You want to raise good children? You need the character of God in your own heart so that you can put it in theirs. What else are you going to impress upon them? Oh, the character of the father saints. He's not going to see his son as an employee. I came home yesterday and my floor was covered with blood. My children had done a foolish thing. They're goofing off and wrestling. 
And one of them got hurt. I wouldn't wrestle with Stephen's children if I were you. <laughs> Is there a father in the house that can tell what happens when your hands are covered in your own children's blood? Hmm? How that feels? Doesn't matter how it happened. When your children's blood is on your hands, how's that feel? Made me think of my heavenly father. Because he let his son's blood be on his hands for us. It was his will to crush him, Isaiah said, for you. Yesterday, my hands were covered in my son's blood. And I tell you, I did not like the feeling. Then it dawned on me. My hands have always been covered in my son's blood. Because I'm responsible for what happens to them. Oh, that you would take that responsibility seriously. Because the world is waiting for sons of God. And they come from the sons of men who love their God very much. Your children's blood is very much on your hands. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we see our responsibility to be like the father and stop worrying about whether or not we've played the prodigal. When does your life shift and stop being about you and start being about your child? The saddest thing I've ever seen is men in their 60s that are still talking about their calling as if it is not their children's calling. Your calling was to raise up godly offspring to tell the next generation, well, they will, but, 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 but me, more me. Guys, from the time they're born, our emphasis shifts to them. I'm concerned about what my children will do, where they'll go, the world that they'll touch. I've already had almost 40 years to make my mark. My job's to prepare them to make theirs. Come on, you want to train a child in the way he should go? The heart of this father is an amazing thing. When he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer... Why sinned against heaven? Why sinned against heaven? In the Jewish culture, you can't miss it. We miss it. Say, what did he do against heaven? He did it to his daddy. His daddy is the representative of heaven on earth. It didn't get delegated out. It wasn't the priest's job. It wasn't somebody else's job. It is the daddy's job. The son realized foremost he sinned against heaven because he sinned against his father and his father was put there by heaven. The father knew something as well. The father knew how to react to the child because remember the father is an example of God in the story and of course in life he is an example of God. This father is not actually God. He's a father. But he represents the heavenly father. So he has a responsibility when acting towards his son to act like God acts. Oh, man. You want to talk about a heartbreaking story? Parents that reject their children. Oh, man. David said in the Psalms, though my father and mother forsake me, you will never forsake me. Because a parent has the first and foremost responsibility to have the character of God towards their children. And if they can't do it towards their children, they're not fit to leave their home, much less lead the world. If your thoughts are drifting towards wrongs done to you, resist it. You have a personal responsibility. 
If it's your daddy's fault, if it's your granddaddy's fault, it goes all the way back to Adam. It's always been somebody's fault. The question is, where does it stop? It better stop with you. Somebody said, Pastor, that's good preaching. See, I'm preaching better than you're listening. I am. Maybe I could sit there and you could finish the message. Have I touched a heart out there yet? I'm trying. Oh, Jesus. He sinned against heaven. What verse are we in? I'm glad you're back, Dustin. I love you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to us went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, man, I don't know how long you've been away from God. You know, both these sons are far from their father. They're so far. One of them's far while sitting in his house and the other's far while eating with pigs. And the father's looking for the same thing from both of them. While they were a long way off, while he's a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. You want to know what God is like? He's not there with a stick waiting to hit you. He's not there to punish you. You want to know what your God is like? He's filled with compassion waiting for the slightest chance that you'll turn towards him. Now, don't you twist him into some warped American parental view that says if he loves me, he accepts what I does. He does not. He is holy. Don't you shame his name like that. He accepts you. He does not accept what you do. And if you're going to come to him, your life must change. And if it doesn't change, you shame the name of the Father. Churches that tolerate this shame the name of the Father. It's like allowing your two-year-old to yell at you, no, slap you in the face, and push you out of the way and eat your meal. It's not loving. It's dereliction of duty. God won't do it either. You cannot spit in his face and mock him and think there's no discipline. But he disciplines sons he loves. He sends famines so that their hearts will turn around. He disciplines those he loves. He doesn't discipline to kill you. He disciplines to help you. He wants to help you. He loves you. He's looking for you. In a little bit, these families, the Vincents and the Halls are going to come up here and they're going to hold their children in the air and we're going to pray for them. It's not because they don't love them. It's because they do. There are very few parents in this world that have a child born to them that they hate. It happens, but it is so rare. It's assumed that love will flow downhill, that every parent will love their child. It's assumed, but the Bible teaches a child how to love their parent. We have to be taught to respond. It's assumed that God loves us. We have to be taught how to love him. Why do you love? Because he first loved you. Why will your children love? Because you first love them. Whatever you do first in their life is what they'll learn to reciprocate. If you don't like what you see, look no further than the recesses of your own heart. Man up and stop blaming everyone else. It falls upon our shoulders as parents. There's two times in the Jew's life he got really, really excited about his kids. On his 13th birthday, because he could read the word of God for himself, he said, thank you, Father. I'm relieved of my responsibility. He now knows how to read your word. And when he was 30, because he was competent in his craft, and he could say, I'm pleased with him, Lord. He's completely in your hands. He may run my life one day, but I won't run his anymore. 
Oh, there's some parents that could hear that. 30 was the absolute end of the line, period, and it started at 13. Y'all still love me? It's okay. I love you, Pastor, but it's going kind of long. I'm actually, I think I can do this. I think we'll finish. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. If he loved him like this, if he felt like this about him, why didn't he run to him when he was in the distant land? So I thought, I thought that, I thought that he left the 99 and, and went after the one. Hey, do you see the context of Luke 15? How about it, it comes, it comes in the the wake of two parables just before us. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. You know what a sheep was in the day? Might as well be your car. How many of you, if you lost your car, would look for it? What's a lost coin? (laughs) It's obviously money. How many of you, if you lost a couple grand, would be looking for it? Those of you without your hands up, there's an offering box over here. You can lose it anytime you want. If you don't value it anyway... (laughs) The context of this is you guys are natural, and if you lose something of value, you want it back. But you act like if someone has strayed from God, he doesn't want them back. No, he wants them back. He's just not willing to go participate in their sin. He already has has provided for that. You leave the 99 to go tell the one about mercy, but once they know about mercy, you don't chase them every week out. You don't divorce their life of consequence. Famine is the consequence of sin and praise God for it. If he didn't have a famine, he wouldn't have turned around. My parents were private school teachers. I can't tell you the number of times I listened to them argue with somebody's parent about why the kid deserved a better grade. (laughs) How about study? Did they deserve to study more? Well, it's just that, that... Oh, I understand. You want to remove all consequence from their life and you will be so sad with the results of that. How did you get where you are? You want your children to make no mistakes and I want mine to, I don't like it when they stick each other in the leg with knives. Don't like that. And yet, do you know how I learned not to do it and why I've been warning them about how they handle knives their whole life? In the same place on my same left calf, I got more stitches than my kids got. You learn the things that you learn from making some mistakes. This this causes mercy in our lives and in our hearts. This father was looking for the kid. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. What is your God like? He wants to run to you. He wants to kiss you. He's not going to run to you, though, until you turn to him. He draws near to those who draw near to him. He does not chase down and force people to follow him. And neither does any healthy church. Are y'all hearing me? Can you read between those lines? I will stand by the fruit on the tree. You need to draw a holy line in your family and say, this is high ground. We will not deviate from it. You want to know what God looks like? Look no further than mom and dad. This is what God looks like. And if you run from this, your life will reap the wages of sin, which is death. 
If you imitate this, your life will reap the wages of righteousness, which is eternal life. Verse 21. The son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. What does God want for you? In the Bible, your robe is your righteous deeds. The father quickly put the ability in the son's life for him to be distinguished. What distinguishes you as a man of God? It's not what you believe, it's what you do. And when you want to do what's right, the Father will provide as much opportunity as you can possibly handle. Put a ring on his finger, the sign of covenant and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. When you run from God, he may be dead to you. But I assure you he's not dead. It's you that is dying. Just like Adam, though, you can be told that you're dying, be dying every day for 900 and some odd years, and you still feel pretty much alive until the day that you die. Oh, that you could wake up and come to your senses. Is your life producing life or death only? He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Your God wants to celebrate with you. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. This brother's already received his inheritance and had access to the father any time he wanted. But he is angry at his father's affection to someone else. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Do you see how he saw his father? If he's slaving for his father, what is his father? The master of slaves. Do you understand the heart of God? Because if you want to raise godly children, you have to know the heart of God. He's not a slave master. He's not an angry tyrant with a stick. He loves us. He loves us enough to send famines when we need them, to send encouragements when we need them, and to be looking for the slightest turn towards Him that He can embrace you. And He's not looking to rain down penalty on your life. He's looking to remove it. You know, one brother's sin is so obvious and the other far less obvious. I told you there were three classes of the two sons. The first one is like Cain and Abel. One's bad and the other one is good. The second one is two brothers that are both guilty. The third class is there's two kinds of sons of God. In Hebrew, when you say that Gideon is David's son. He is Bar or Ben, either one, David. This is Gideon, Ben David. Gideon, son of David. You say the same thing about Luke and Brent. In Hebrew, the word Bar or Ben 
has two connotations. One is this is my biological descendant, and the other is this is someone who identifies with me because he acts so much like me. So that when I named Judah, I named him Judah ben Yamin, Judah, son of happiness, because the name Benjamin became associated with a son that brought you joy, and that was my hope, and boy, he and Gabriel have brought me joy. When you're reading in Hebrew, the only way that you know whether this is a biological son or a son that acts like you, because can't they be two different things? Can't you have a biological father that you've never met and are nothing like? Come on, there's nobody out there got a baby daddy? Just a name on a birth certificate? Or maybe a name kept off a birth certificate so that we can get financial aid from Uncle Sam? Greek is a little more precise, though. It has two names for a son. The first is technon. That's T-E-K-N-O-N. Technon. Not tekron. That's what Chevron puts in their gas. Technon. A technon is a biological son. Is it a good thing to be a biological son? Of course. It carries with it all the natural assumptions and associations of a son. Luke is a technon. In the Vincent household. Gideon is a technon in the whole household. These are children that are biologically related to their parents. Of course, the other way is a huios. It's the same as technon, except it carries with it the meaning of this one is like his dad. His individual characteristics are like his father. Let me show you an implication in the scripture because this is what we want when we dedicate children. We want them to be biologically born of heaven and we want them to take on the characteristics of their father in heaven. In Matthew 3 and in verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up technon for Abraham. Out of a rock, God can make a biological descendant. Do you want to be a child of Abraham? Well, of course they did. Is it bad to be a child of Abraham? Of course not. But if it was only about natural descent, you could do that with a rock in the power of God. You see the same thing in John 1 and verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become technon of God. Children, as if you were born in God's family. But that does not at all imply that you are yet like God. When you are born again, how much like God are you? (laughs) About as much as you own a house when you sign the papers for it, Nick. He owns that house in another 360 payments in 30 years. He's credited with owning the house. You become a child of God when the Holy Spirit comes into you. You are technon of God. You are born of his family. But you may not be huios yet. You can see that in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called huios, 
of God. They will be called sons of God because they are like God. What is God like? He makes peace where others make war. What is God like? You're supposed to be able to look at the children of God and see. How about Romans 8? Start with me in verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When the Spirit goes into you, you become technon. You become related in the family line to God. But Romans 8.14 says it like this. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are called sons huios of God. See, when God's Spirit entered Brent, Brent became of the family of God. But when he began following the leading of God's spirit, he became a child who was being like God. It's an easy thing to raise up a biological child. It's just some genetic material. These days they can do it in a test tube. But it's an awful lot of work to raise up one who is like God. By the way, Your children are going to be like you if they live with you. So how is it that they become like God? You see why we place such a heavy weight on the fathers and mothers? He said, look, I didn't do such a good job, and I I got that these parents are doing good, and I'm I'm really, really happy that, that we're going to have a joyful celebration for that, but you've made me feel terrible, Pastor, and I can't do anything about it because it's already in the past. Good thing that we have a story about the character of our father that says today, if you so much as turn towards him, he's been waiting for it all of your life and he will embrace you right where you're at and he will remove the penalty of the seed that was sown that was bad. As you come back in his house, he clothes you with dignity. He said, no, no, you misunderstand, Pastor. I, I was never out of his house. I just didn't do it right. Oh, yeah, that was that other class of sons. One who said well and lived poorly. Amicable enough, but never obedient. Is he really a huios then? Is he really a Hebrew bar then? Saints, we're like God if we're his sons. We're his sons, then we're like God. That's the way that works. He births you in the spirit so that you can become like him. Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus. If you have real faith, it produces acts that are like God. And that sonship is huios of God. I got two little boys today. The kingdom of God has Gideon, Alex Hall, and Luke, Jaden, Vincent. I want to encourage you with what Ephesians 5.1 says. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. How is it that these young boys will learn to imitate God? It starts in their home. There are two scriptural things that I want to share with you as we pray for them. The first is a godly mama. Because I've talked so much about fathers today that we're missing the one who spends the most time with the children. How about Miss Hannah? 1 Samuel 1 and verse 28. 
Say there when you were there. This is worth reading. Are there any godly mamas in the house? Oh, my goodness. There is nothing more beautiful than a godly mama. Any nasty worldly woman can go flaunt herself for the attention of people. But a godly woman is praised for her deeds. The Bible says it this way. A beautiful woman without discretion is a gold ring and a pig snout. But a woman that has a quiet and gentle spirit is beautiful in the same way that the women of old used to make themselves beautiful. I'm happy to say we have some beautiful women in this house. You got to love when the single guys yell amen. Married men, you missed an opportunity there. Next week we'll teach on the marriage covenant. So now I give him to the Lord. Come on, Teresa. Come on, Jennifer. Can you imagine? So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. You know, I know a little something about this. My wife, she loves the sons. She loves them. She loves the daughter too. But as my sons are getting older, they're preparing to run their own households. And it's not appropriate to treat a 17-year-old like a 12-year-old. There's a natural friction that starts to happen there because he's preparing to... You know, it's a lot harder to give his whole life over to the Lord than it is just to dedicate a child. We say, Lord, his whole life is yours as long as I can steer it in the direction I want it to go. No, you have a responsibility to teach the character of God. You cannot manipulate the outcome. I'm trying. I am. I'm trying to force preachers. But God will make them whatever they want. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Hannah had prayed for a child. So when she got him, the first thing she did was give him back to the Lord. If you want little Luke to be a success, then it'll depend upon Teresa giving his life over to the Lord. If you want little Gideon to be a success, it'll depend upon Mama giving his life over to the Lord. As a daddy, how many of you even know who Manoah is? In Judges 13, 8, Samson's daddy, Manoah, is overcome. Can you imagine? You've got a son... And your wife has to keep the Nazarite rituals even while she's pregnant. He's going to begin the deliverance of Israel. It's going to be unique his whole life. This was a little bit like Joseph must have felt. Do I have any part in this here? Is there a daddy that feels like because you go to work, because you're not in the house as much, that your role might be diminished and you don't know? Manoah It's like, hey, wait a minute. You came and appeared to my wife. You did a... Oh, that the man of God could come back and teach us how to bring up the boy. He took responsibility for the time he did have with him. You know, like it or not, and I like it, little Luke is going to grow up and he's going to want to be like Brent. Little Gideon's going to grow up and he's going to want to be like David. How important is it that they set the right example? In a healthy relationship, the father represents God. And so you want to be like your daddy. The best thing you ever find is when fathers and sons are best friends. You never find that where a father did not discipline his son. It's the funniest thing. 
Fathers that lovingly but firmly discipline their children end up friends with their children later in life. When parents refuse to discipline their children, they end up at war their entire life. It's amazing. It's exactly like God. He disciplines those He loves. And boy, I'll stand by those results any day. Would you all like to dedicate these two children? They're getting riled up. They want to get dedicated. Little Gideon just looked at me and with his eyes he communicated, Pastor, I've been sitting here a long time. My butt hurts. Can, can, can we get on with this? I'm ready to serve God. He's ready to answer the altar call. Would the Hall and the Vincent families and extended families come forward? We want to we pray with you. You know, Hillary Clinton stole the quote from somebody. She said that it was uh, a whole village that raised a child. We got most of the village here, don't we? Brother Charlie, would you come put your hands on these babies? Saints, we stand as representatives of the kingdom of God. So we have an elder in the church hold up a baby. But who's going to hold up that baby every day of his life? Mama and daddy are. Who's going to hold up mama and daddy? Grandparents are. Church family is. That's the way this works. <laughs> Father, we thank you. We dedicate these children in your name. Lord, we have taught their parents and we believe that your character is in the parents. We ask that you would divinely impress upon these children your character through their parents. We thank you, Lord, for the godly heritage and we claim the promise that these sons will be mighty in the land. We thank you for them and we celebrate their lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Y'all give a hand to these families.